What is the King James Bible, and why is it considered by many the authorized edition? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Hello, and welcome to Footnoting History. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Nathan. And today we're going to be discussing the creation of the King James Bible. In 1604, newly minted King James I of England, also known as King James VI of Scotland, because why have only one name when you can have two, called together a conference at Hampton Court, one of his many homes, to discuss the Puritans' religious demands. While the Protestants had carried the day in the English Reformation, which branch of Protestantism was still up for debate and the English National Church known as the Anglicans, was having a lot of opposition from the Puritans who were hoping, as their name implied, to purify the English religion. Allegedly, 1,000 Puritan ministers had signed the millinery petition, which is not about hats as I thought it was upon first learning about the document. Instead, the petition actually listed a series of demands on how to rid the Anglican Church of the last vestiges of Roman Catholicism. Mainly, the Puritans wanted to end various ceremonial aspects, such as no more sign of the cross during baptism, or using a ring in marriage ceremonies, or bowing at the name of Jesus. None of their demands were met, but it did lead James to call the Hampton Court Conference to at least address them. And it's there that James decided that what the Anglican Church really needed was a new Bible in English. Now, since its inception, the Bible has been produced in various languages, but the mainstay for approximately 1,000 years by Order of the Roman Catholic Church was Latin, and the translation of the Bible made in the 4th century by St. Jerome became A, known as the Latin Vulgate, and B, the translation of the Bible for the Church. Although they didn't actually officially state this until the 16th century, when all of these problematic translations, which we're about to discuss, start showing up. So, side story that might help clarify why they waited so long to officially say this. I once asked in a class on the writings of C.S. Lewis, because where else would you ask, right, why the Roman Catholic Church didn't officially declare the Immaculate Conception, meaning the belief that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was conceived without sin, until 1854, if the idea had been accepted and promoted by the Roman Catholic Church for centuries, some say as early as the 5th century in the East. And my professor replied that it was because it wasn't until the 19th century that the church thought it had to take an official stance on it as the idea was under attack. I suppose then it wasn't until 16th, the 16th century that the Roman Catholic Church felt it had to take an official stance and say, Latin Vulgate, that's where it's at. <laughs> uh, we should note, though, that even though the Vulgate, uh, the Latin translation by St. Jerome in at the end of the 4th, beginning of the 5th century, uh, had been the standard in the Roman Catholic Church virtually since, since the time of Jerome, um, yeah. there had been attempts over the course of the Middle Ages to update or make changes or corrections to it where uh, Jerome had, had mistranslated something or had... Um, uh, something had, over the course of the centuries, a scribal error had occurred. So the the text was updated over the course of the Middle Ages. Uh, it just wasn't officially sanctioned as this is the translation which we will use until the 16th century. Prior to this official stance in 1542, though, uh, the church was adamant that it was uh, the Bible was not to be translated into the vulgar or common languages of the rest of Europe, such as English, uh, French, German, Spanish... Portuguese. 
The Protestant reformers argued that this restriction made it hard for the majority of uneducated or illiterate people to know what the Bible said. Now, part of the reason why the Catholic Church was against these translations was that uh, if everyone used the same Latin Bible, it made discussing things like theology much easier, and it also created a universal church. You could go anywhere in Europe, hear Mass, uh, hear the Bible read, and it would always be in the same language and it provides sort of a universal standard. Because the point at which you attempt to then uh, render it into individual languages, you get into nuances of meaning and translating idioms, and um, it was theologically much easier um, and much simpler and much more uniform to keep everything in Latin. Uh, The thing is, though, at the end of the Middle Ages in the 14th and 15th centuries, there's this movement within the Catholic Church towards a more personalized or individual relationship with God. Uh, And the idea is that what people who are sort of advancing this new... Well, not, it's not really new. It's a new emphasis within the within the Christian mm-hmm. faith. The idea is that people would read the Bible on their own. They would read Scripture on their own and then have, through Scripture, come into direct contact with the Word of God and thus have a more personal relationship with the divine. The church doesn't necessarily like this because whenever people start sort of riffing on the Bible on their own and interpreting it on their own, <laughs> um, people can get some very strange ideas, particularly if they don't have the education in uh, either theology or biblical history. So you start reading certain things in the Bible and you practices which may have seemed normal in ancient Israel, um, even as late as the 15th or 16th century, would have been viewed as very strange. Much less, you know, any sort of fine points of theology or where something is supposed to be taken metaphorically or what have you. The vast majority of the European population, however, was illiterate or at the very least couldn't read Latin. Uh, Later, this desire for people to be able to read their own Bibles would be the driving impetus behind literacy movements in Protestant countries. But in the later Middle Ages, the goal was simply to create a version of the Bible in a language that people understood. Uh, We will, however, sidestep the issue (laughs) on how much Latin is actually understood by the everyday person. you know, Which is probably another podcast right there. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the short, the short answer that. is they knew more than you would think um, because they probably they knew some Latin uh, from the things that they recited in church, the mm-hmm. Pater Noster, uh, the Credo, that sort of thing. But anyway, mm-hmm. that's a whole other podcast. For the sake of this episode, though, we will take at least the English reformers at their word that the people needed a Bible in the vernacular. So, starting in the 14th century, one of the first forms of rebellion, I guess you could say, of the English reformers was to translate the Bible into English. At this point, uh, we're talking about Middle English. Under the direction of John Wycliffe, who was a founder of a religious movement uh, labeled as heresy, uh, this was known as Lollardy, various translations were made between 1382 and 1385. In the early 15th century, the English clergy, with the blessings of the crown, sought to suppress these works, and in 1409, they declared that there could be no new translations of the Bible made without ecclesiastical approval. But, as often happens, various older copies of Wycliffe's translations continued to circulate both within England and on the European continent as well, and they were actually pretty faithful translations, though of the Latin into English, to the point that it was hard to tell whether they were actually Lawler translations. Uh, Some were even used by staunch Catholics, such as Sir Thomas More, the author of Utopia, who believed that he was just using an Orthodox anonymous translation. Except, you know, he wasn't. Not at all, right. (laughs) 
Not at all, Thomas. Not at all. Go and go and put your hair shirt right back on. The next big thing in biblical translation, at least in England, and remember, our, our podcast is focusing on England. I mean, if we were to bring in the rest of the continent, it would get crazy. We're actually going to even throw in Switzerland in a moment, was Tyndall's Bible. Inspired by Protestant reformer Martin Luther and Catholic humanist Erasmus's work, William Tyndall was an English scholar, clergyman, and strong proponent of the English Reformation. In the 1520s, he decided to produce a new version of the Bible based on the Hebrew and Greek texts, meaning he goes back even further than Wycliffe and his followers in his attempt to be as accurate as possible. Okay, unfortunately for Tyndall and the translation, he was executed by strangling and being burnt to the stake before he made a complete version. But he did get out the New Testament and some of the Old Testament. Unsurprisingly, supporters of Roman Catholic orthodoxy accused Tyndall of translating words based more on his beliefs than on the original meanings. For example, he changed priest to senior or elder, depending on the edition. However, much as the authorities tried to bury, or in many cases burn, Tyndall's Bible, timing is everything. And the advent of the Gutenberg printing press since the 1450s and the subsequent use of it in spreading Tyndall's work made it pretty hard or darn near impossible to actually stamp out. But Tyndall's work wasn't complete, which brings us to the biblical translation that Shakespeare, John Donne, and John Bunyan used for their work, the Geneva Bible. The work was in English, but it was actually created in Geneva by Protestants who escaped England during the reign of Catholic Queen Mary. No idea why they would want to do that. Relying on the Greek, Hebrew, and Tyndall's translations of the same, the group of scholars managed to translate all of the Old and New Testaments into English. The Geneva Bible was not published in England until 1575 and the reign of Elizabeth I, but it became a fast favorite. And one of the reasons, or really, I mean, the main reason it was so well-beloved, by the general public at least, was that it, and not by later bishops, but by the general public, was that it came with a, quote, apparatus. The Geneva Bible came with a study guide. Some have also argued that the Geneva Bible sounds more modern than the King James Version, even though it was done decades before. But as we'll discuss, just as Geneva relied on Tyndall, the King James Bible was also very similar to the Geneva for the bulk of the text. And it really does have this critical apparatus because the side, it's it's printed in sort of two margins on a page and then mm-hmm. on either side of the margins are uh, footnotes mm-hmm. that are actually really common in today's uh, most study Bibles today. In, in fact, yes. a lot of Bibles, like Bibles we find in hotel rooms, will still have that. But they're basically just lists of cross-references uh, to other passages in a text whenever anytime, you know, someone in the New Testament quotes an Old Testament prophet or something like that. It'll provide the citation or maybe an explanatory footnote or something like that. Um, lots of people, so, I mean, it, it obviously appealed to um, intellectual Protestants. Um, right. But some people actually did not like it, as we'll see in a bit. I know, but um, I also wanted to throw in, because I just realized that we didn't mention it, although we discussed it before when we were planning this episode, that it's also, it's just in the grand tradition of religious texts throughout the ages, the idea of glossing it and writing it. I mean, so yeah. Right. There's this great, there's this long medieval tradition of providing explanations in a text, Mm -hmm. not just biblical text, but almost any text, uh, particularly canon law. Uh, mm-hmm. You have people who are glossing canon law and providing expl- explanatory footnotes or, you know, reconciling things in the text, that sort of thing. Well, that's got us some of the uh, English translations of the Bible. There's actually one other uh, sort of semi-major one uh, 
uh, before the King James Version, and that's known as the Bishop's Bible, uh, which was also used as a reference uh, by the, the translators of the King James Version. So that brings us up to the Puritans. So who were the Puritans and what were their grievances? Now, most of our American listeners will immediately, or one hopes immediately, uh, think of the pilgrims who founded the Massachusetts Bay Colony after sailing over in the Mayflower. Well, this is sort of the same movement, except that the people who came over on the Mayflower were the most hardcore sort of branch of the movement. They were the separatists uh, who wanted to completely sort of move away from the Church of England. Uh, Their goal, as mentioned in the opening of the podcast, was to purify the Christian church, specifically the Anglican church, uh, and this is where they get their name, the Puritans. Mainstream Anglicans were not really big fans of the Puritans, Uh, mostly because uh, these are the people, as I discussed in my Santa podcast, who attempted to, well, no, they did, cancel Christmas. Um, You know, they didn't believe uh, in any sort of strong ritual or lots of uh, tradition, uh, anything that smacked of Roman Catholicism they wanted to do away with, including Christmas. So you can see why, you know, mainstream Anglicans, who are essentially Anglicanism, as an Episcopalian, I feel like I can say this, Anglicanism is essentially Catholic light. All of the ritual, very little of the dogma, none and of the, the guilt. And the angry messages start <laughs> pouring in. Because mainstream Anglicans were not fans, the Puritans were mostly relegated to the fringes of the church. Upon the accession of James VI of Scotland to the English crown, where he becomes James I of England, the Puritans managed to at least catch the king's notice with their millinery petition. The Puritans, however, had to be careful. In England, church and the state were very closely tied together because the head of the Church of England is the head of state. It's the king. If you question the church, you could be seen as questioning the king's authority to rule. The Puritans worked very hard to make sure that their loyalty to James I wasn't seen as questionable, even though they vehemently disagreed with the state of the English church, and perhaps even James's position as head of it. To an extent, it worked, but... Only to an extent. James I held the Hampton Court Council, but he ignored all of the actual requests by the Puritans and instead decided that what the Anglican Church really needed was a new translation of the Bible into English. At which point we have come full circle to the start of this episode. So, on to the translation. Now, James and some high-ranking members of the ecclesiastical hierarchy, like the Bishop of London, had some ground rules for this new edition. First, even though the millinery petition was one of the causes for the Hampton Court Conference, and therefore the new translation, those working on it were not to be influenced by those pesky Puritans. They were instead supposed to use uh, the Bishop's Bible as sort of a guideline. They were supposed to use the Bishop's Bible because of the second point. Marginal notations, which James hated and which were used in the Geneva Bible, were strictly forbidden. Translators were to go back to the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, and, when consensus did not easily come to the group, to check the Latin Vulgate, and five earlier approved versions, including Tyndall, Geneva, and, of course, as I said, the Bishop's Bible. Okay, so here's another joke for your next dinner party. How many men and how many years does it take to create a new royally sanctioned version of the Holy Bible? This really isn't a joke. I'm making it a joke. It's going to (laughs) carry. Louis C.K. is going to use it on the next show. 54 who are invited, 47 to actually do it. All but one were Anglican clergymen. So our outlier is Sir Henry Saville, who, I mean, he was a Greek scholar, but he had achieved most of his positions just by constantly asking for them. 
Uh, he had even been imprisoned after taking part in a rebellion against Elizabeth I, but he still managed to be named to the board responsible for the creation of the King James Bible. So way to, way to go, Henry. We're very proud of you. In a way, the production of this Bible was a labor of love for the men involved. They received no direct payments for their work. Instead, it was suggested to their bishops that as livings, and I'm going to explain this even more in a minute, but as livings became vacant, they should be given to these men. You see, in the English church, and this was going on long before the break with Rome, clergymen who held benefices, such as, for example, the head priest of the village church, received a payment and portion of the tithes or donations for their own personal salary, if you will. A number of clerics were given benefices, and many were given multiple benefices, and they used these often to go and study at university. They would get permission to leave for a year, two years, three years. They would get permission regranted after a year, and they would go and study for a while at Oxford or eventually Cambridge or even sometimes on the continent. But this, of course, means that they're not actually acting as a parish priest. They're not in the town doing their job. And this became a big issue that many have argued helps lead to the Reformation, this this anger over absenteeism that people were left with lower level priests dealing with everything. And it's not just even lower level priests, it's bishops right. who are... Oh, yeah. I mean, the bishops disappear, priests disappear. Anyone who has any sort of outside funding of any sort just uses the money to to wander away a lot. But as you can tell, even with the Protestant Reformation, absenteeism is still an issue. It's still being used. Benefices are still used to support clergy to go off and do other things. In this case, to write the King James Bible or to edit, I guess, earlier editions and create a new um, Bible. In 1604, the scholars themselves even asked that a plea go out to all the English clergy asking for a donation for their work. And it's another four years before it's even completed. Now, these four years uh, are quite eventful in England, um, mostly during the middle of them. A terrorist attack is foiled, which attempted to kill the king and most of parliament. Uh, This is known as the gunpowder plot. Those of you who have seen V for Vendetta uh, know the phrase, of course, remember, remember the 5th of November. And essentially, in a nutshell, because uh, we have a podcast planned for later this year on it Mm -hmm. what happens is uh there is a plot to blow up parliament by a group of radical catholics by storing uh, a bunch of gunpowder underneath the house of lords and blowing it up whenever king james comes in uh, and sits to open parliament on the the 5th of november 1605 uh the plot is eventually discovered uh the guy that they catch guarding the gunpowder is named Guido or Guy Fox, and so to this day, the 5th of November in England is a holiday, Guy Fox Day. The point is that a nation which is already split between religious factions, even within Protestantism, and the men attempting to give them one cohesive Protestant Bible, were affected by this plot. Uh, to their minds, God had saved the Protestants, and now their work held even more importance. So, uh, picture these people, if you will, working on their multiple copies of different Bibles and translations. Now, the way that this uh, process worked is that these 47 men who worked on the translation were divided into what we would call ad hoc working groups or colleges, and each college was assigned a specific section of the Bible or a book or, or a passage. 
And so they would sort of work on their own through the week and then come together like once a week uh, and sort of exchange translations and sort of haggle out amongst themselves. Well, do we change, do we translate this passage this way or do we translate it this way? And then they would circulate those translations amongst the colleges uh, and sort of get a, a kind of consensus. And so writing copious notes and margins as to what to keep and what to change and circulating these preliminary translations amongst themselves were what they did for four, this was what they did for four years. After that, an even smaller group, although this time they were paid, spent several years taking these uh, various translations from the different colleges and making them work together uh, and sort of stitching the whole thing together until finally, in 1611, their authorized version was printed. In a way, multiple editions were printed, as several printers were used. And actually, if you look at these early King James versions, you'll find uh, variants uh, from printing house to printing house until the ones published in 1613. From there, you get uniformity in the editions for time. Uh, but again, different printing houses sometimes leads to misprints. Right, and my favorite, and the favorite of many, um, is that in, there's a 1631 version of the King James Bible which leaves not out of thou shalt not commit adultery. So there is a 1631 edition of the King James Bible which says thou shall commit adultery. Furthermore, the scholars had at times done what is known as supplied words to clarify what they saw as issues in the text. Basically, if they didn't think the text was clear enough or that, you know, a lost grammar or that the grammar didn't translate well into modern phraseology. Or that it didn't flow well. Or that it didn't flow well because... I mean, again, we always talk about how pretty the King James Bible is. So they would supply words to make it work. The earlier editions did not set these words apart. So it's hard to tell what the translators inserted and what is actually from the original texts or the earlier editions of the Bibles. Starting in the late 17th century, printers started setting these words apart using italics. It took decades for the King James Bible to truly gain acceptance among both scholars and the general public. The actual thing that basically made them win, if you will, is the Civil War, the English Civil War. In the mid-17th century, the Puritans led a successful civil war against the English crown, successful for at least four decades. And once the smoke had cleared and the English monarchy had regained the throne during the English Restoration, the Geneva Bible was rejected for what it was perceived as its Puritan roots. Once that's out of the window, the King James Bible becomes the translation and for many, it still is. So what's the intent of the scholars who labored over it? What did they hope to achieve? In their own words, and from the preface of the second edition, they, quote, never thought from the beginning that they should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make of a bad one a good one, but to make a good one better, or out of many good ones, one principal good one, not justly to be accepted against. That hath been their endeavor... That their mark. So did they achieve it? As always in history and theology, the jury is still out, even 400 years later. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember... The best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.